This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. So before we get into kind of what you do now, I mean, how'd you get interested in just being more in the farming side of life, like growing food and everything like that? Was there an interest that happened when you were young? Yeah, I mean, I think it happened by way of my surroundings. As I was growing up, there was a lot of my family, I guess, were into farming at some point or in some way. You know, even one of my grandpas was an engineer for John Deere, which is like a really nonlinear way of being involved with farming, I guess. But he was designing hydraulics for, for John Deere and the farming industry. So, you know, I think it's in my blood or my DNA, if I could say that. But, you know, as a young kid, my mother was always out in the garden constantly. I remember her just having big round hat, always out in the garden, always planting flowers. And we just had flowers everywhere in our yard. And as kids, my brother and I, we had a vegetable garden off to the side of our house. And so we were very much involved with digging in the soil and just planting seeds. And that was all like really tangible magic to me as a child. So I think that's kind of where it started, you know, just that feeling of of inspiration from what can come from the earth and trying to understand those things. So that's kind of where I got started and, and eventually ended up learning about mycology through that path. What kind of stuff did you guys grow when you were kids? All sorts of vegetables, you know, green beans, peppers, onions, potatoes, all the basic vegetables that you would imagine. Cucumbers, we'd pickle them, flowers, pretty much everything that you would suspect would be in a vegetable garden. We were definitely do it. And, you know, some of those things were successful and some of them weren't. And that was always a interesting concept to me, like why some things would go well and some things wouldn't. And I think as I grew older, I started to really like dive into the science of that, those questions and try to understand what is actually happening there. Did you ever think of doing anything else in your career where you kind of just, this is kind of the path I want to go on? I mean, I was in tech for a long time. If I wasn't in the garden, I was probably on a computer tinkering around, taking something apart, trying to understand how it worked. We've come from a generation where we I can remember not having a computer. I can remember dial up. And when my grandparents bought us our first computer, I think it was probably within a few days when I dismantled the whole thing and my dad was just like, what is going on here? You know, and so it was a lot of tinkering with technology and trying to understand that. And ultimately that's kind of what led me to the West Coast from Kansas is taking a position in tech, working in software development and a lot of peripheral areas within there and not having a yard of course, in the Bay Area, which is where I was living at the time, kind of led me to starting to pick up books around soil science and reading about what's going on there. So I could kind of get my fix per se of gardening and just like getting my hands dirty by way of reading about it at that point. So, Wow, that's so interesting. And such an interesting comparison between like tech and nature too, having that kind of marriage in there. What was it like kind of working in tech coming from that background and moving from Kansas? Was it like a huge culture shock of 
going into the Bay Area and now it's suddenly like everything is one super fast paced, tech focused, less connection to nature. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, I was living on a farm, literally on a farm in Kansas right before I moved to the Bay. And so it was wild because I had, I had a dog, I had a boxer and he was just like free roaming the farm constantly in Kansas. And then once I got to the Bay, I moved directly into the mission district. And so I went from having a, a big farm with all this space and gardening and doing all these things I love to living in this literally a room of an apartment, like very, very small apartment. And there was just people and things everywhere. There's a heavy Spanish influence and South American influence in that area. So as much of a, of a contrast you can imagine, I experienced at that point that the culture was just wildly different. My pup, you know, was at that point leashed and we're walking around the block to get his exercise in. So there was pros and cons. The Bay Area provided a lot of opportunity that I didn't have in Kansas. And so that was a big upside for me. But yeah, massive contrast, definite culture shock. And coming into technology in general was not foreign to me, but just the amount of time I was spending sitting at a desk at that point, not out in nature was definitely foreign. And I spent the next 10 years in that space. So by the time I ended up leaving tech, I was feeling I was really yearning for my freedom and just like being out in in nature at that point. So yeah, what was that decision like when you're kind of in that moment? Because I mean, I would imagine, yeah, you have your total ups and downs in tech, and you have that excitement of building something that nobody's ever seen before. But you also commit so much to it. And so by the end of it, yeah, I would imagine a little bit burned out too. I mean, what was that process like of going, okay, I need to step out of this? It was a process of assessing my health and the potential of what was to come and as well as just passions, you know, like a lot of the entities that I was supporting in tech weren't necessarily like entities that I believed in and could get behind with my passions. And so there was a moral dilemma happening, I think, around it all. You know, it's, as they say in, in a lot of different industries is, you know, they'll put the golden handcuffs on you. And that's kind of what was happening. You know, like I was I was there for paycheck, wasn't really passionate about it. There's certain aspects of technology and working in tech that are really fulfilling. But at the end of the day, what I had in front of me, which was my mushroom company at the time, was just so much more fulfilling to me. And so it was during COVID that I decided the potential is is right there in front of me and all I need to do is take the leap. So I had to chew on that for probably a solid year before I got to that point. But once I took the leap, I was like, oh, so relieved. And I felt so much more in alignment with my health and the health of the world and just the idea that I was doing something that was actually giving back to the world at that point. So That's amazing. So you started the company before actually leaving tech and everything. Were you in the city when you started it too? What was that kind of process like? I guess to rewind a bit, to kind of start from scratch here, as I was saying, I was gardening when I was a child. And then when I came into the Bay Area, I was in tech. I didn't have a yard. So I'm reading about soil science. And I'm really trying to understand the microbe makeup of soil and how it all comes to be, you know, the secondary decomposition process and how we end up getting to this place where we plant a seed into this thing that we call soil. And so that just naturally led me to the fungal kingdom. So this is probably like 2013 at this point or 14 where I'm reading about these things. And I ended up leaving the San Francisco Bay Area and moving up to Portland where I am currently. In Portland, there's just a massive 
culture around mushrooms and the fungal kingdom in general. So I joined the Oregon Mycological Society. It was probably really like the first seed that really expanded my vision of what this whole thing was. I went on a couple of foraging forays and I got to get down on my hands and knees and, and dig around. And what happened was I had that experience again where my childhood sense of wonder was really sparked because I'm in this forest, which is just totally magic within and of itself. But I'm looking around and I'm seeing these golden chanterelles and these red lobsters, and they're just popping up all over underneath this forest canopy. And so it's just this magical wonderland. It's like very Alice in Wonderland-esque, if you will. And so I'm becoming just wildly inspired by what's happening here. And so I'm reading about this more. And I read this book, Organic uh, Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation by Trad Cotter. And it goes through the basic steps of how to cultivate. So during that time, I realized that I've learned how to grow mushrooms. And so I start out by cultivating mushrooms in a small tote in my house and I'm successful. And so every success is perpetuating the next one. Wait, what was the setup like? So obviously like you're just going for it. So how'd you do this? Your first test? Yeah. So I am just going for it. I'm just reading. I'm just gathering information. I'm put, putting the pieces together online. I'm just gathering information and I just go for it. So I get some manure and some vermiculite and I decide that I'm going to grow. I basically what happened is there was this guy up in Vancouver who wanted me to take him up on a trip to forage for mushrooms with him because he didn't have a car. And I met this guy on a forum. And so I take him up there and he says that he's like a psychedelic mushroom grower. And I'm interested in learning about that as well. And so he's telling me about this and he ends up giving me some spores and so that's kind of my entry at that point. I have these spores and I'm, I'm learning about Petri dishes and I'm growing this all out in my house and I sterilize this manure and I grow it all out and I mix it together and it colonizes and I'm just enamored with this process because I'm seeing these fungal culture grow out over everything in this little Tupperware tub. And over time, eventually the mushrooms pop up and at this point, I'm just totally elated. It's this crazy magic that I've never experienced before where I'm actually growing a mushroom in my home. And I'm also hearing in the world about how many people like typically fail doing this over and over again. But that wasn't my experience. I had success right off the bat, which I think was largely the key to me continuing to do this was just that initial success. And I had many failures after that, but that was one that didn't fail. I was very successful and I was able to consume this thing that was ultimately a medicine to me from within the confides of my home. And so I realized that I'm not going to grow like psychedelics to scale or anything like that. I didn't really have an interest in continuing that. So I'm looking at the gourmet sector at this point, and I'm really considering what it has to offer. And, and so I start to grow gourmet mushrooms. And to do that, I decide that I'm just going to go big and build this 100 square foot fruiting chamber in my garage. And so at this point, I'm <laughs> framing out walls in my garage, which I've never done before. And I'm learning how to like frame out walls and build walls and, and section off areas of, of my garage. So at this point, I have this 10 by 10 fruiting chamber and, and I'm growing mushrooms. And at some point shortly thereafter, I have about 100 pounds of mushrooms. And I'm wondering what the heck am I supposed to do with these? I don't have a refrigerator space for this. I definitely can't eat all of these. And so that's when I tap the local grocery store and just by chance have great receptivity from them and they are officially our first customer and are able to kind of understand that I'm in a learning phase and they worked with us on the ebbs and flows of our of our inventory and so 
that was kind of how it all happened. And so this is 2015, 16 at this point that I've essentially started a mushroom company out of my garage. And I did open the LLC at that point and officially a new business owner (laughs) at this point. So Wow. What a journey. That's truly amazing though. So it's it's Bridgetown Mushrooms. Dive a little bit into like the brand and everything. Yeah. So basically I'll I'll just finish out the story. You know, in 2018, we move out of my garage into a warehouse in Tigard, Oregon, where we build these huge custom fruiting chambers. And they are built with clear walls so you can see inside of them and everything. So we move out of my garage into this warehouse. And we start to build out the facility and probably sometime by like March or May of that year of 2019, we are fully functional and operational at that point. So we're mostly in farmers markets and grocery stores at that point. We're cultivating a wide variety, about eight species at that point for grocery stores. We're just pushing our brand throughout the farmers markets. So one of the big things about Bridgetown is we've always been centered around sustainability. So We actually were the first mushroom product in fully compostable packaging in the grocery stores in the United States that I'm currently aware of. We've since gone away from that to bulk, but we had this really cool containers that were pulp, and then we had a bioplastic that went over the top of that. And then there was a sticker that we had printed, which they actually, even the adhesive on the sticker was compostable. It was made of sugar cane. So we had this really cool design of packaging And we're bringing these mushrooms into the stores with this crazy splash of color. So we have, if you can imagine, we have yellow oysters that are just bright yellow and pink oyster and blue oyster. And we're bringing this beautiful spectrum of colors into the grocery store. And on their shelf, there's these mushrooms, just a rainbow of colors at this point in compostable packaging. So it was a really proud moment for us. And since then, we have in, I think, 2020, we launched our tincture, our line of tinctures, as well as our e-commerce piece. So our website launched then. And then in 2021, we actually opened our retail store in the Multnomah Village area of of Portland, Oregon. So this company scaled pretty quickly for the most part, but the diversity and spectrum of products and line that we offer is really what kind of kept us going during COVID. So it's been an interesting ride and it's been really fast scale, but here we are. That's incredible. When it comes to actually that scale side of the company, what is it like growing gourmet mushrooms versus normal mushrooms? So if you think about it, like you, most people, they go to the store, they're like, oh, the baby bellas, those are on sale. Okay, we'll grab those. Maybe it's a special day. We'll get shiitakes. How is it different when you're kind of on the other side of the business and you're trying to grow literally the best mushrooms you can? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of difference between a button mushroom and and what we're cultivating on. The button mushroom industry is not an industry that we would try to compete with, first and foremost. You know, the price point that people pay for for bread mushrooms is extremely small. It's like, yeah, I think you can buy a quarter pound of mushrooms for like $2 or something like that. So the other difference is, is that those mushrooms all are grown on manure, right? And so they are what's considered secondary decomposers, whereas what we're cultivating is primarily considered primary decomposers. And just to dive into that a little bit, in nature, when a tree falls off of, or when a leaf falls off of a tree, the first line of decomposition would be a primary decomposer. Or when a tree falls, 
that wood first is broken down by a primary decomposer. So those are things like oyster mushrooms, lion's mane mushrooms, chestnut mushrooms. These are mushrooms that eat wood. So they're, we're growing on sawdust. They come in and they decompose to some degree. And then the secondary decomposers would come in and, and kind of finish the job. And so that would be where the button mushrooms come in. So from that standpoint, there's just an inherent difference there. But also from more of a grocery store standpoint or consumer end standpoint, there is a wild difference in flavor profile as well and textures and things like that. So when I'm kind of dreaming up the company, I'm thinking about how there's just this gap in the market and how in the United States, we're a little bit homogenous and we have essentially like one or two species of mushrooms that most everyone's aware of. And so I'm realizing that there's this huge gap specifically within the culinary world where chefs are trying to create unique, interesting dishes. And so from that standpoint, I'm realizing there is a place for us in this market. And and there's probably a very large educational piece involved with that. And so we spent a lot of time educating. I think those are like really core differences as well as like nobody's really going to have questions about a button mushroom, what to do with it, what is it. At the farmer's markets, when we you know started this whole thing, that was always the question. It's like, what am I supposed to do with these? Mm-hmm. And so there's a hu- huge difference there, big learning curve. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily a mushroom per se, but from a cooking standpoint, you can cook most mushrooms all the same. You know, it's heat and whatever fat you want to use, like an oil or a butter or, or whatever that may be, and then herbs. And so I would say those are the, really the primary differences between the two. We have totally different markets or demographics that we're marketing to the button industry and the gourmet industry. We're definitely looking more or reaching more into the culinary realm and trying to promote to chefs and then also just at-home consumers that are really interested in trying something new. But at the end of the day, that aspect of trying something new is something that, you know, is finite and and that'll end at some point. And, and these will just be all the world of mushrooms, you know, and they'll all fit into the same categories buttons at some point, I believe. So, wow. That's awesome. And when you guys were building this, what was it like kind of going through that educational process? I mean, was it more, yeah, there are more species or this is why ours is better or was it, this is what you can make with it? Well, it's both, you know, it's not necessarily, I don't know that we really take the approach that this is why this is better per se. If I were to speak to that, you know, I could say that there's a lot of crossover between medicinal and gourmet mushrooms within our sector, specifically around lion's mane. If I were to say, why is, if someone asked me, why is this better? I might just say, well, you know, lion's mane is backed by studies that show that the hericinones and the arenacines are actually stimulating neurogenesis, helping rewrite synaptic pathways, restoring the myelin sheath on the nerve ending. There's a lot of health benefits that are not necessarily available through bud mushrooms. Bud mushrooms have their own set of health benefits and unique nutrient profile. But at the end of the day, the spectrum of mushrooms that we're growing have all their unique nuanced set of values, right? And so there's nutrient differences, and then there's just different medicinal applications that can be available within those. So I think the approach we really took was just getting over the hump of like, are these mushrooms going to kill me? So a lot of people, their first question, especially in the United States, we kind of have a phobia around certain mushrooms outside of the button. And that's just because we don't have the same culture as they do in Europe, where they're foraging from a young age and they're really up on these things. 
A lot of people don't cultivate in Europe. They just forage these mushrooms and then bring them to market. So I think a lot of the questions we were getting initially were just, are these going to kill me? How do you know that? And what am I supposed to do with them from a culinary standpoint? You know, because a button mushroom looks wildly different than a pink oyster. And so it's, it's really understandable that these questions arose. But like I said, at the end of the day, I think you can pretty much cook them all the same. But yeah, it's, it's just a matter of, of educating at the farmer's markets in an online presence, uh, getting blogs out. And just talking about this and, and kind of raising awareness, because even to this day, there's so many people that will come by the market and don't know what these mushrooms are. They still haven't seen them. I think in the United States, we're really still in our infancy state around this market. But at the end of the day, I think that it's we're just in, in alignment, you know, like to have this happen, like it's going to grow. It's going to happen. The U.S. currently consumes about 4% of the world's mushrooms. And it's the least documented area of natural science. So I believe that the United States is kind of due for this education. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's an interesting frontier, I'd say. There's a lot of research going into it. I've, I've, I haven't seen so many different types of mushrooms at farmer's markets as I have in the last three or four years. You're having more creativity in that area. And, and the culinary space is fascinating too, just because it, it is about chefs creating unique dishes because how many different takes on you know, whatever dish it is, can you do, they're looking to really push the envelope. And that that's kind of, I, th- I think, an ingredient that is often overlooked that it's textural, it's medicinal, but it's also, I mean, incredibly high quality too. Yeah. And I think one of the big things that are, is overlooked with mushrooms is it's a complete protein. So, you know, as the world kind of grows and we increase our our vegetarian and vegan population and people start to look at alternative meats it's right at the forefront you know i i know that there are a lot of companies that are doing massive r&d efforts on how to create fake meat with mycelium but at the end of the day you don't necessarily have to have a mushroom turned into a steak uh, for you to get the the nutrients the mushrooms right there already and it is a complete protein and so People can consume that as a meat alternative. And it's from in the culinary sector, I think it's the most important data point that it is a complete protein and you can get all the essential aminos that you need as a, as a vegetarian or a vegan or, or a pescatarian from the mushroom itself. Mm, that's incredible. I didn't know that. Those benefits are across whatever you guys grow. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And when you guys kind of went into more of that sustainability side of things, what was kind of the thought process? Because I mean, I would imagine compostable packaging, one was more expensive and still is, you know, you're making those decisions as a business to kind of move forward, but do it in a different way. What was that process like where you guys were discussing? What do we do? I'd like to go this direction. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, I think a lot of, of what happens here is guided by the mushrooms themselves. And so if we look to nature for how we should kind of interact and, and interrelate to the world, I think that what nature's telling us really is, number one, I think it's kind of paving the way for how we can be sustainable. I think all the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. And mushrooms, in my opinion, are some of the greatest, if not the greatest teachers in nature. And so a mushroom is consuming biomass. It's turning it into something that's better for the world. If I were to put them inside of plastic, I feel like I'm doing a disservice at this point. So for me, as one who was like stepping away from the tech industry, because of the moral implications that I had within me, 
I felt like I couldn't take that step backwards where I step into this mushroom world where I'm trying to do good for the earth. And then we step back by putting it in a plastic container. It just didn't make sense. So, you know, the goal for us is just to use business as a model for sustainability as much as we possibly can. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of pain points that we have, but at the end of the day, we just want to do what we can. And so I think that the world is prime for these kind of products where, yeah, you might pay a little extra because of the packaging, but these are the growing pains of where we want to get to. I think that it's a small price to pay for for a greener world at the end of the day. Was it difficult to find a solution for that? Like finding compostable packaging that worked in your manufacturing and everything? Absolutely. I mean, it, it took a lot of research and, and just digging into it. But, you know, I think that as we move forward, there's a lot more companies that are kind of at the forefront of, of this and p- pioneering that space and trying to look at different, more compostable, more eco-friendly and sustainable materials. At the time, I think there was not as many options. And so we, we really kind of achieved something there. But now I think there's a, there's a lot more options popping up. Some of the problems that you run into, though, obviously with biofilm and things like that, when you're packaging something that has moisture in it is a problem we had was the biofilm would become extremely wrinkly and start to break down essentially because the mushroom was dissipating its moisture off and then it would become wrinkly and the aesthetic of the product was much lower at that point. And so I was willing to sacrifice that at the time. Now I think we've gone an even more sustainable route where we've just done away from with that individual packaging entirely. And we just moved into bulk with, with grocery stores. So those uh, mushrooms are just delivered in cardboard and then they're, they're put out on the shelves. And so that was logical for us. It made us more efficient in the back end, and, and we're just purchasing and producing less materials in general at that point. Well, and what I think is so interesting about mushrooms is that diversity. Like when you were starting to talk about they're researching all different ways of being able to use it with mycelium. I mean, there's, you know, a company that's trying to do it with with wall panels inside of structures, you know, as insulation. I mean, the, the versatility and the uh, what it can offer as what it is, is pretty incredible. But I don't think a lot of people know really what a mushroom is. Like at the end of the day, like what is it? And I think for people who don't know, what is a mushroom? Yeah, that's a great question. It's like the fruit of a tree, essentially. That's, I think, a good analogy. So the seed of a plant, it grows out and the roots kind of infiltrate the soil and it starts to pull up the nutrients. So a mushroom has a similar thing. There's two spores and they mate and they create a culture. And then the mycelium, which is technically akin to a plant's roots, then crawl down through the soil and they start to break down. They have an enzymatic process where they start to break down the biomass in the soil and get the nutrients they need. And essentially the mushroom itself is really just a mechanism for dispersing its seed so it can proliferate, right? And so that's kind of a similar deal with plants, right? So the fruit comes out and the fruit contains the seed. And so it's definitely, it's like basically a mechanism so that it can continue to, to grow and advance its life cycle. And so what happens is the mushroom comes up out of the earth, or maybe it comes out of a tree and it's actually considered the fruiting body of the fungal culture. The mushroom is, you know, the part that you would see sticking out of a tree or, or out of the earth or wherever it, it may be growing. And that is the mushroom itself, but its action is to 
dissipate or eject its spores into the world. And then the wind come along and carry those spores away onto a new area where it can latch onto some piece of biomass and mate with two spores and the process will begin again. So I guess the short answer is that a mushroom is the mechanism of a fungal species to release its seed. Wow. Wow. And so from a sustainability standpoint, I mean, it eats biomass, it it helps decompose essentially. So it's kind of an important piece in that process. Do you think as you guys, I know you guys are growing indoors, but like just the concept of basically how can you mimic nature? Biomimicry is something I think it, it keeps getting brought up more recently as ways that businesses and growers and plants and whatever can mimic nature essentially and what we can do at scale. Is that something that you guys can kind of do in terms of the decomposition process? I mean, you guys have a waste cycle associated with your product. Is it less impactful because you guys are growing mushrooms? I think that we can get to that place. I mean, one of the big pain points that the business has currently is obviously that we grow in plastic bags, right? So the mushroom substrate or the soil rather is put into a plastic bag where it's sterilized. And that's really the key component there is the sterility as to why we kind of haven't been able to solve this pain point is we have to sterilize these bags, right? And so the substrate's put into the bag, the bag is then folded up and it's tucked away and, and it's put into a sterilizer where it's cooked for some length of time at some specific temperature, depending on different variables. But that plastic bag is really the biggest pain point of the operation, right? So then at the end of the life cycle, the mushroom itself is still a living being. And so we get we pull that mushroom out of there and we're left with a plastic bag. We've looked at a lot of different options for trying to solve this problem. There was a, just as an example, there was a company that was looking at taking plastic from businesses and looking to turn it into roadways. And in my mind, that's, it's better, you know, it's helpful because we can take the plastic, do something with it. But in my mind, the best solution would be to not use plastic at all, or to somehow be able to actually break that plastic down into something that was usable or, or gasified in some way that it didn't cause more you know, issues for the environment. And so one thing that we have been looking at for some time now is just the possibility of having a fungal culture actually eat that plastic, which we are seeing now mm -hmm. in nature where fungus are producing specific enzymatic profiles that can break down polymers. And we're seeing that start to come into play a little more. Really? Yeah. So it was only maybe five years ago, there was like maybe one species that they had seen that was eating, actually consuming plastic. But now there's this whole set of different species that are able to do it that are known to man. And we're starting to, to look at that a little more closely. Wait, that's wild. So essentially, it just kind of adapted. The mushrooms adapted to kind of needing to decompose something else. Because polymer is not exactly a natural material. 100%. Yeah, <laughs> it's wild. It's real magic. It seems as though the earth kind of like knows what it needs. You know, if I could say that, I'm sure that there's a good explanation, but ultimately what's happened is the, you know, the mushrooms are here to decompose and break down things. And so I think that over time they've evolved to produce a specific enzymatic profile that could break down some of these things that we have in our landfills. And so I don't know that that's like the breeding ground for where those things occurred. I can only speculate really, but I do know that we're seeing this at this point and, and it seems to allude to the idea that the fungal kingdom is aware of the issues on earth and that it's doing its part to try to combat that almost like it's here to protect the earth in a way. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. 
what mushroom would you say is your favorite one that you guys have grown or was the most, I don't know, rewarding to grow? Like it was difficult to cultivate it. The most difficult to cultivate that we cultivate in house is probably the cordyceps mushroom. It's also wildly awe-inspiring. I don't know if you're familiar with cordyceps, but they're a type of mushroom that will take over insects' nervous systems. We, I think a lot of us have seen this on Discovery Channel at this point or in the Fantastic Fungi movie, but ultimately what it does is it'll take over a, an insect's nervous system and they'll do different things, but they control the nervous system. And for instance, they can walk like an ant up high onto a vine where it knows it's up in the air where there's a good wind stream. And at that point, it'll produce its fruiting body, which is this little cylindrical noodle looking thing, oftentimes very bright orange or other like stunning colors. And then it'll produce its parathesium, which is this little mechanism at the end of the cordyceps where it can eject the spore. And so basically what it has done at this point is taken over something that it can control and carry itself to a place that will allow them greatest success for the dissipation and proliferation of its species once it releases that spore. So pretty crazy there. But that mushroom in particular is difficult because it's a completely different set of like growing parameters, essentially. There's different nutrients, there's different substrate. 100% of the process is different and the yields are lower, but it ultimately... This species that we cultivate is called Cordyceps militaris, and it produces a couple of compounds, one called cordycepin and one called adenosine. And those compounds do different things in the body, but one of the really magical things it does is it mimics ATP, which is literally cellular energy. So it's the energy that the mitochondria produces for us to kind of get through our day. So when we consume this, it helps lower our cortisol levels, which will help bring a little more energy to us, but it also that ATP production will allow us to like have this really long day. Like if you're going to work a 12 hour day or something, it'd be really great to take cordyceps because you don't burn out nearly as easily. It's, it cr- creates a long lasting energy, unlike coffee per se, which is kind of more like a burst of energy. Interesting. That was the most challenging to cultivate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Which one's your favorite to consume? Favorite to consume. I mean, I love consuming cordyceps. They make you feel great. It brings on a lot of mental clarity. I mean, from a medicinal standpoint, probably cordyceps and lion's mane are my favorite. Reishi is definitely up there as well. But cordyceps for sure is like the most tangible in the body. From a culinary standpoint, I think my favorite mushroom is, I would say I probably have two. And one of them is the Italian oyster mushroom. It's a different species than most others that we cultivate, but it has the best texture and flavor profile of any of the oysters, in my opinion. It has a strong umami and it just has a really like, it's not too tough, but it's also not too soft. It's just just the perfect oyster. The other one from a culinary standpoint would be the maitake. And that mushroom is a medicinal powerhouse. And it's also hands down, I think the best culinary mushroom known to man, in my opinion. I like to just coat it in a little oil with garlic and bake it until the fronds become crispy. And it's literally like a mushroom chip. No way. Only mushroom I can just sit down and eat a whole bowl of just by itself with no other additive or like side dish. (laughs) That's a really interesting way to cook that. I love that mushroom. It's so, so good. Really incredible. But yeah, making chips out of it. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's a little bit of oil mixed in a bowl with some garlic powder, some salt, and then just cook it till it's like crispy. 
And man, it's incredible. Okay. So where do you see the mushroom market kind of going over the over the next like five, 10 years or so? Because I mean, you see all these emergences of, you know, you have mushroom coffees everywhere now, you have mushroom, literally everything now. Do you feel that there's going to be a hype and then a settle or do you feel like it's kind of here to stay in a way? I think it's definitely here to stay. It's hard to argue to the contrary and that there's a lot to get into there. From a culinary medicinal standpoint, I think we're going to continue to see the ceiling rise. At some point, we'll probably plateau. I don't know exactly when that is, but I think at this point in time, we're still very much in our infancy state. Just recently starting to see articles about this movement from some of the bigger news publications over the last week, literally. So I think that we're really on the precipice of a huge boom that's about to happen. I think that What's going to happen is we're going to continue to see more of our products infiltrated with mushroom additives, cordyceps, reishi, lion's mane, maitake, agaricas, blase, all of these superfood mushrooms that have medicinal potential to them, especially in the American market where we're grinding very hard. We have a grind culture and we're trying to kind of like pack our brains and our bodies constantly. And I think mushrooms play a very central role in that effort. From a culinary standpoint, I would suspect that we're going to continue to see mushrooms booming in that sector as well, because we're going to see all these companies doing kind of nonlinear efforts with mushrooms, like creating fake chicken and fake steak and fake whatever it may be, meat alternatives. That's going to be a thing that continues to just explode. And then the other aspect is you're just going to start to see your mushroom section in your grocery store become a lot more robust and diverse. I think right now, on the coasts of the United States, where there's a lot of this happening already. But I think inner United States has no idea about this for the most part. Colorado, probably an exception. Kansas, you're not going to see where I'm from. You're not going to see the diversity of colors and mushrooms happening on the shelves in the grocery stores there. So I think there's a lot of room for these really what I would call, say, low-hanging fruit aspects of the mushroom industry, which is like functional mushrooms. And the culinary mushrooms that we're talking about there, I think there's a lot of room for growth there. But where the ceiling is literally infinite is in the nonlinear applications of the fungal kingdom, you know, and that's going to be in, I guess, tangible ways in which we see that now are like things that you talked about, like textiles and also wall paneling. There's so much potential for use and functionality within the fungal kingdom for these things you know it's not something i could even speak to because it's all unknown the fungal kingdom is literally it's probably the statistics a little dated that that it's seven percent explored it's probably closer to like 10 or something now but we still have essentially 90 percent of this massive kingdom which is the largest you know natural kingdom known to man to explore and we've already seen it touch on cancer and Alzheimer's and plastic remediation and oil remediation. We're seeing alternative leathers. There's just so much potential for it to solve problems of humanity and create a more sustainable, ecologically friendly world for us. So I personally think that we're on the precipice of a mushroom era where this is going to last well beyond you and I's lifetime. And it's going to infiltrate our lives and really become a part of the daily conversation. So I think that was really well put because I definitely think the applications are very much unknown. And I think the expansion, I've been, I've been seeing a lot of that mushroom leather lately, which is really intriguing because I don't think a lot of people know that when they go, hey, oh, vegan leather, and they're like, oh, this is a way better option. But vegan leather actually uses polymer. 
So you're kind of like, is that the solution? And so I think having mushroom leather and all different types of materials that you can have these solutions for in the market gives the consumer more of a, a choice to do something with it. But I mean, the flexibility of mycelium, it's amazing, really amazing. On the culinary side, what are you most excited about? Where do you think is that frontier? Like, is it different ways to present the mushroom or is it different ways to kind of incorporate the mushroom into a dish? It's both, you know, it's, it really is the presentation. There's just so much potential there. The mushrooms that we work with provide a wide spectrum of shapes and sizes and colors. And so there's just so much potential for artistry there in presentation how it is incorporated into a dish, I think there's just a lot of play there in general. I mean, I think the sky's the limit for chefs at this point. I think there's a lot to be excited about there. I'm also really excited about the potential of new species coming to market that we currently aren't aware of, which there's a lot of room for that. You know, there's all sorts of species out there that haven't been consumed regularly yet. And I think that as we start to apply more biochemistry and understand the constituents and extrapolate different nutrients and things from these mushrooms and and understand them better, there's going to be a lot of room for new species to come to market. That in particular is, is wildly exciting to me, just the unknown of what could happen there. I mean, what we have right now is mostly new to the world or new to the United States market, but the potential for something that's new to like everyone, including me, is wildly exciting, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting frontier because I noticed the thing that process kind of going through with with coffee and beer and spirits now, and I think it's translating into food a lot, is you know, finding that the varietal of said species, whatever you're putting in the dish or the drink, if it's coffee, how can you find that undiscovered bean or that undiscovered mushroom. And I think that's kind of that edge that I think a lot of people are kind of looking for in the industry to also tell a better story. I mean, if you can tell the story of a mushroom that, you know, how much it does for the environment around itself, and then what its story was from growth to landing on the plate, I think it has a huge narrative that you can put in sustainability into that, which is really cool. Absolutely. And I think the idea of integrating sustainability into our food systems in that way with that backstory Mm -hmm. is will really help us traverse some of the pushback that happens in the world around sustainability. And not that people are against it, but rather just that it's, you know, sometimes change is hard. And so I think anytime that we can add a story and allow someone to latch on to the story that happens, I think it kind of helps to ease some of those, those initial maybe reservations that they have about something that's new. Mm -hmm. Do you remember your first sustainable purchase that you ever made that you kind of said, Hey, I'm going to, cause I would say probably you, farming or at least growing in a garden growing up, I would pretty much constitute that. But do you remember when you first made a purchase that you said, I'm going to make this purchase because this is a sustainable product, whether it's the process or what it's made of? Or I don't know if I have a specific story in that in regards to that question, but I mean, I think one thing that I do remember is just the initial time where I was just like, kind of becoming aware of how much plastic we're using when we go to the grocery store, right? In that way, you know, I think it was back in Berkeley. I was in California going to this place called Berkeley Bowl. It's this amazing grocery store. And just seeing the huge bulk section they had there and then kind of wrapping my head around how the bulk section offers the key to me just like being able to come in and not take home all this packaging and this trash and create this trash. And so 
at some point making the decision to just largely make all my purchases through that bulk system, that was a big moment, you know, and, and just realizing the impact that had because I'm one, I'm not, it's hard to quantify the impact that has, I guess, because there's no packaging for individual things. There's no plastics being used. It just is exponential, I feel like, when you make a decision like that. And so I do remember that moment because I think that it was kind of this moment of like, wow, I've I've been ignorant, but then also the the whole world is in a way because we just create these systems and everyone falls in line, right? And it's really easy to not have awareness around what's actually happening here, the implications of it. And I think as the world's kind of screamed out more and more like, hey, there's problems here we've started to have more awareness. And it's always interesting when you have this awareness of like, oh, obviously I wouldn't want to use plastic. It makes you feel almost like a caveman. I'm just like, how did I not realize that originally? So I think that was the big moment where I started to really think about these things when I walking into that bulk section, just realizing the implications of buying from a bulk section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I I think it's it's interesting the the small little things you can do that have generally a lot larger impact. And you don't realize how many little bags you get when you're we're younger and you go to a store. Like everything goes in a bag. It goes in a bag you put in your cart. Like, <laughs> and then you suddenly have like ten or twelve of these things every trip you make. Multiply it by how many people go in the store every day. It's a huge impact. Which is it's so interesting to see that. And when you actually make that conscious decision, it kind of changes the way you do things. And I always found it. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, of course. And I found it interesting that now you can get milk in glass. It's not new. They did it a long time ago, <laughs> but they're doing it again because they're like, wait, actually, this was a this is a pretty good solution. And it's just interesting to see like how that learning process goes. Cause yeah, in that moment, you're like, of course, this is the best decision, but like we didn't have plastic bags for groceries either back in the day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like I don't know that there's anything that feels worse to me than taking like an apple and putting it into a plastic bag. I'm like, what is the point of that? You know, that's, I get the functionality and everything, but it's just strange how much of a step back we've taken as a, as a species, I think. Whereas like you said, back in the day, which at one point seemed so antiquated, the milkman coming around with the glass container, but we had it right back then. That's really interesting to think about those different timelines and how they've intersected and everything. Do you think that we've just been kind of disconnected from our food system in a way? Like almost you just, the grocery store is where all the food comes from. It's not actually, you know, a farm in the mindset of the consumer where, you know, they don't necessarily think about what the process of food is. I don't know. I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot lately of just that I feel like we've been disconnected from where our food comes from and how it actually gets there that you know, we just are kind of blindly following whatever's just there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is the case. And I think that that comes by way of being in a big city, really, I think disconnects you from that space. I think you get get outside of cities and people are so disconnected, you know, they're largely growing their own food. I think globalization has caused a lot of that disconnect as well. You know, just for one, the way people are on the go, we're not really like farming. We don't have to go out and hunt for our food anymore. So it's a natural progression that's occurred, but just being away from anywhere that you can look and see like a garden or a piece of farmland or something in and of itself disconnects us from that. And it's, we're largely a product of what we're surrounded by, I think. And so I just feel generally speaking that urban areas or the further away you can get from cities, the more 
sustainable the practices are a lot of the time, or at least people are less disconnected from the systems that are going on there. I think that there are uh, is a large percentage of the population that goes to the grocery store and pulls an apple off of a counter and has no idea where that came from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's part of that process of kind of sharing that story. I mean, I, I think you could get organically grown food, but if that organically grown food is shipped halfway around the world, you could get maybe something that doesn't have an organic label on it, but was organically grown locally, and you're good to go. Absolutely. I saw a container of peaches recently, and I think it said something to the likes of grown in Argentina and packed in France or something like that. And it was peaches in a plastic container. And it was just such a moment for me to be like, what have we done? (laughs) Uh, And why why was that necessary? But I think it is largely globalization too. And also in America, we're, we're very used to being able to have access to all these different constituents constantly. So we've kind of lost this concept of seasonality to some degree. And I think that is like a key player in the conversation here, because if we lived more seasonally, then we would almost be committed to living locally at that point. Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these things that we get that are out of season are coming from China or, or South America or wherever that may be. And that's causing a lot of much bigger carbon footprint, you know, and whenever we're bringing something like that into market, and it's just all in the name of convenience at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, the fact that peaches can travel across the Atlantic twice to then go to a grocery store (laughs) seems like a lot. In plastic at that point and syrup, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting, do you think that hydroponic growing is going to change some of that? I mean, you guys grow inside. Do you think that that's going to kind of change what the food systems could look like in the future? Yeah. And I think that that speaks to that, like it kind of bridges that gap of seasonality as well, if I can, you know, like it's a lot of things that we maybe can only get seasonally locally could actually be available year round if they were grown hydroponically indoors. I do think that probably just given climate change is the trajectory we are on right now, we're probably going to see a big uptick in indoor vertical farming. And that is probably the wave of the future and probably makes sense. You know, there's a lot of variables there to be quantified and what that means. But as it sits right now, I think that that's probably the wave of the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting concept because you're, you're able to go closer to wherever you're trying to get to, whether it's a grocery store or a farmer's market, or even just straight home delivery straight from the place, kind of like a modern CSA. And it's an interesting concept because for the places that don't have access to that food readily available, they can actually grow it and it'll be so much more fresh. Because I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area and so fresh food and fruit was generally pretty readily available. I mean, Driscoll strawberries, it was like 30 minutes south. So yeah, all of it was pretty local. But yeah, being able to copy paste that almost if you're in the middle of Kansas or Nebraska or something. I think it would be a huge benefit for sure. And in terms of footprint too. Absolutely agreed. Yeah. So what's in terms of nature and everywhere you've kind of traveled and gone, what's kind of your favorite place to enjoy nature in the world? Oh, probably here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the biodiversity here and just the forests we have here, the Douglas fir forest, the redwood forest, the sequoia forest. I just think that they're second to none really. It's an incredible space, and I feel like I'm really blessed to be able to call it home. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's anywhere in the world that 
offers such biodiversity here. And that's, that's just really a strong interest for me, especially as I'm exploring the fungal kingdom and, and looking at different diversity of species and things like that. So that's awesome. Anywhere in particular, kind of just in the Portland area? I really like the Opal Creek nature area. It's just a gorgeous area. There's some gorgeous blue streams that come through there and it's just, it's incredible. That's awesome. It's hard to pass up a day out in that area. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. And so what's kind of your hope for the future for Bridgetown and kind of just the future of sustainability too? For Bridgetown, I'd like to see us move to a Korean bottle system so that we can close out all the pain points we have around sustainability. I'd like to see us start to bring more of our, you know, U.S. grown mushrooms to value added products. I think that's a big, big aspect I'd like to see as well. We start to scale more and cultivate more functional mushrooms so that we're so that the industry is importing less mushrooms from China. And so those are really two big focuses for us is increasing our production of functional mushrooms at scale so that we can combat what's being imported from China and provide a, a U.S. grown sustainable product, but also just like moving to create and bottle system so that we're not producing as much plastic. Mm, that's awesome. Cool. How could people get connected with Bridgetown and connect with you and learn more, buy more grocery stores? What's kind of the setup for that? Yeah. So our website is bridgetown-mushrooms.com and most of our products are all listed on there. We also have an Instagram account, which is at BT Shrooms. So those are the, really the main two ways to connect with us at this point. Our Instagram account is going to have all of our up-to-date information on it and all of our listings and everything. We will be launching some new products coming up over the next few months. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I'd say keeping an eye on our website. You can sign up for our newsletter and then just follow us on our Instagram page and you'd be pretty up to date at that point. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Trevor, thank you so much just for taking the time to hop on the podcast and talk all things mushrooms. I mean, I think it's such an interesting space that I haven't explored yet on the podcast for sure, but it's also a huge piece of sustainability that I don't think a lot of people realize. And so I just want to say thanks for taking the time to dive into all this. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here and I love talking about this. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Cassinum. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really hold tight for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at sustainablegoat.com.